Book Two, Chapter One of the Mystical City of God, Volume Three, by the Venerable Sister Mary of Jesus of Agreda. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Book Two, The Marriage at Cana: How Most Holy Mary Accompanied the Redeemer of the World in His Preaching, The Humility Shown by the Heavenly Queen in Regard to the Miracles Wrought by Her Divine Son, The Transfiguration of the Lord his entrance into Jerusalem, his passion and death, his triumph over Lucifer and his demons by his death on the cross, the most sacred resurrection of the Lord and his wonderful ascension into heaven. Chapter 1 At the request of the Most Blessed Mother, Christ our Savior begins to manifest himself to the world by his first miracle. The evangelist St. John, who in his first chapter mentions the calling of Nathanael, the fifth disciple of the Lord, begins his second chapter with the words, And the third day there was a marriage at Cana of Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there, and Jesus also was invited, and his disciples to the marriage. John chapter 2 verse 1. Hence it appears that the blessed lady was in Cana, before her most holy son was invited to the wedding. I was ordered by my superiors to inquire how this harmonizes with what I have said in the preceding chapter, and to ascertain what day was meant. Then I was informed that, notwithstanding, the different opinions of the commentators, this history of the Queen, and that of the Gospels, coincided with each other, and that the course of events was as follows. Christ the Lord, with the five apostles or disciples on entering Galilee, betook themselves directly to Nazareth, preaching and teaching on the way. On this journey, he tarried only a short time, but at least three days. Having arrived at Nazareth, he baptized his blessed mother, as I have related, and thereupon immediately went forth to preach with his disciples in some of the neighboring places. In the meanwhile, the blessed lady, being invited to the marriage mentioned by the evangelist, went to Cana, for it was the marriage of some of her relatives in the fourth degree on her mother's, St. Anne's side. While the great queen was in Cana, the news of the coming of the Redeemer into the world, and of his having chosen some disciples, had already spread. By the disposition of the Lord, who secretly ordained it for his own high ends, and through the management of his mother, he was called and invited to the wedding with his disciples. The third day mentioned by the evangelist as the wedding day of Cana is the third day of the week, and although he does not say this expressly, yet likewise he does not say that it was the third day after the calling of the disciples or his entrance into Galilee. If he had meant this, he certainly would have been more explicit. According to the ordinary course, it was impossible that Jesus should be present at a wedding on the third day after his entering Galilee from Judea, at the place where he chose his first disciples. For Cana lay within the limits of the tribe of Zebulun, near the boundary of Phoenicia, far northward from Judea, and adjoining the tribe of Aser, a considerable distance from the place where the Savior entered from Judea into Galilee. If the wedding at Cana had been on the third day after the calling of the first disciples, then only two days intervened, whereas the journey from Judea to Cana required three days. Moreover, he would first have to be near Cana in order to receive such an invitation, which would likewise require some time. Then also, in order to journey from Judea to Cana, he would have to pass through Nazareth, 
for Cana is nearer to the Mediterranean Sea and to the tribe of Aser, as I have said. Hence his mother would certainly have known of his coming, and therefore would have awaited his arrival instead of going on her visit to Cana. That the evangelist does not mention the visit of the Lord to Nazareth, nor the baptism of the Blessed Lady, was not because it did not really happen, but because he and the other writers confine themselves to that which pertains to their purpose. St. John himself says that they omit the mention of many miracles performed by the Lord. John chapter 20 verse 30. Since it was not necessary to describe them all, from this explanation it will be seen that this history is confirmed by the Gospels themselves and by the very passage in question. While, therefore, the Queen of the World was in Cana, her most holy son with his disciples was invited to the marriage, and as in his condescension he had brought about this invitation, he accepted it. He betook himself to this wedding in order to sanctify and confirm the state of matrimony, and in order to begin to establish the authenticity of his doctrine by the miracle which he was to perform, and of which he was to declare himself openly as the author. As he had already proclaimed himself as a teacher by admitting his disciples, it was necessary to confirm their calling and give authority to his doctrine in order that they might receive and believe it. Hence, though he had performed other wonders in private, he had not made himself known as the author of them in public, as on this occasion. On this account, the evangelist says, This beginning of miracles did Jesus in Cana of Galilee. John chapter 2 verse 11. This miracle took place on the same day on which a year ago happened the baptism of Jesus by St. John. This day was also the anniversary of the adoration of the kings, and therefore the Holy Roman Church celebrates the three mysteries on one and the same day, the 6th of January. Our Lord had now completed the 30th year of his life, and had begun his 31st year 13 days before, being those from the Nativity to Epiphany. The Master of Life entered the house of the marriage feast, saluting those present with the words, The peace of the Lord and his light be with you, literally fulfilling them by his arrival. Thereupon, he began to exhort and instruct the bridegroom concerning the perfection and holiness of his state of life. In the meanwhile, the Queen of Heaven instructed the bride in a similar manner, admonishing her in sweetest and yet most powerful words concerning her obligations. Both of the marriage couple afterwards fulfilled most perfectly the duties of their state into which they were ushered and for which they were strengthened by the sovereigns of heaven and earth. I will not detain myself in declaring that this bridegroom was not St. John the Evangelist. It is enough to know, as I have stated in the last chapter, that St. John had come with the Savior as his disciple. The Lord had not come to this wedding in order to disapprove of matrimony, but in order to establish it anew and give it credit, sanctifying and constituting it a sacrament by his presence. Hence he could not have had the intention of separating the two married people immediately after they had entered into this union, nor did the evangelist ever have any intention of marrying. On the contrary, our Savior, having exhorted the bridegroom and the bride, 
added a fervent prayer addressed to the Eternal Father, in which he besought him to pour his blessings upon the institution for the propagation of the human race in the new law, and to vest this state with sacramental power, to sanctify all those who would receive it worthily in his holy church. The Blessed Virgin, cooperating in this work, and in all others for the benefit of the human race, knew of the wishes and the prayer of her divine Son, and joined him therein, and as she took upon herself the duty of making a proper return, which is so much neglected by other men, she broke out in canticles of praise and thanksgiving to the Lord for this benefit, and the angels, at her invitation, joined her in the praise of God. This, however, was known only to the Lord and Savior, who rejoiced in the wise behavior of his purest mother, as much as she rejoiced in his. Then they spoke and conversed with those that came to the wedding, but always with a wisdom and gravity worthy of themselves, and with a view of enlightening the hearts of all that were present. The most prudent lady spoke very few words, and only when she was asked, or when it was necessary. She always listened and attended without interruption to the doings and sayings of the Lord, treasuring them up and meditating upon them in her most pure heart. All the words and behavior of this great queen during her life furnish an exquisite example of retirement and modesty, and on this occasion she was an example not only for the religious, but especially for women in the secular state, if they could only keep it before their mind in similar circumstances, such, for instance, as this marriage feast afforded. Thus learning to keep silence, to restrain themselves, compose their interior, and allow no levity or looseness to creep into their exterior deportment. For never is moderation more necessary than in times of danger, and in women, the most precious adornment and the most charming beauty is silence, restraint, and modesty, by which many vices are shut out, and by which all virtues of a chaste and respectable woman receive their crowning grace. At table, the Lord and his most holy mother ate of some of the food, but with the greatest moderation, yet also without showing outwardly their great abstinence. Although when they were alone, they did not eat of such food as I have already recorded, yet these teachers of perfection, who wish not to disapprove of the common life of men, but wish to perfect it, accommodated themselves to all circumstances without any extremes or noticeable singularity, whenever it was possible to do so, without blame and without imperfection. The Lord not only inculcated this by his example, but he commanded his disciples and apostles to eat of what was placed before them on their evangelical tours of preaching, and not to show any singularity in their way of life, such as is indulged in by the imperfect, and those little versed in the paths of virtue, for the truly poor and humble must not presume to have a choice in their victuals. By divine arrangement, and in order to give occasion to the miracle, the wine gave out during the meal, and the kind lady said to her son, They have no wine. The Lord answered, Woman, what is that to me and to thee? My hour is not yet come. This answer of Christ was not intended as a reproach, but contained a mystery, for the most prudent queen had not asked for a miracle by mere accident, but by divine light. She knew that the opportune time for the manifestation of the divine power of her son was at hand. She, who was full of wisdom and knowledge concerning the works of the redemption, and was well informed at what time and on what occasions 
the Lord was to perform them. Therefore, she could not be ignorant of the proper moment for the beginning of this public manifestation of Christ's power. It must also be remembered that Jesus did not pronounce these words with any signs of disapproval, but with a quiet and loving majesty. It is true that he did not address the Blessed Virgin by the name of mother, but woman. However, this was because, as I have said before, he had begun to treat her with greater reserve. The mysterious purpose hidden in this answer of Christ was to confirm the disciples in their belief of his divinity, and to show himself to all as the true God, independent of his mother in his being, and in his power of working miracles. On this account also, he suppressed the tender appellation of mother and called her woman, saying, What does it concern thee, or what part have we, thou and I, in this? As if he wanted to say, the power of performing miracles I have not received from thee, although thou hast given me the human nature in which I am to perform them. My divinity alone is to perform them, and for it the hour is not yet come. He wished to give her to understand that the time for working miracles was not to be determined by his most holy mother, but by the will of God, even though the most prudent lady should ask for them at an opportune and befitting time. The Lord wished to have it understood that the working of miracles depended upon a higher than the human will, on a divine will, and above that of his mother, and altogether beyond it, that the will of his mother was to be subject to that which was his as the true God. Hence Christ infused into the minds of the apostles a new light, by which they understood the hypostatic union of his two natures, and the derivation of the human nature from his mother, and of the divine by generation from his eternal father. The blessed lady well understood this mystery, and she said with quiet modesty to the servants, Whatsoever he shall say to you, do ye. In these words, showing her wise insight into the will of her son, she spoke as the mistress of the whole human race, teaching us mortals that, in order to supply all our necessities and wants, it was required and sufficient on our part to do all that the Savior and those taking his place shall command. Such a lesson could not have come from such a mother and advocate, who is so desirous of our welfare, and who, since she so well knew what hindrance we place in the way of his great and numerous miracles for our benefits, wishes to instruct us to meet properly the beneficent intentions of the Most High. The Redeemer of the world ordered the servants to fill the jars or water pots, which according to the Hebrew custom had been provided for the occasion. All having been filled, the Lord bade them draw some of the wine into which the water had been changed, and bring it to the chief steward of the feast, who was at the head of the table, and was one of the priests of the law. When this one had tasted of the wine, he called the bridegroom in surprise, and said to him, Every man at first setteth forth good wine, and when all men have well drunk, then that which is worse, but thou hast kept the good wine until now. The steward knew nothing of the miracle when he tasted of the wine, because he sat at the head of the table, while Christ and his mother, with his disciples, occupied the lower end of the table, practicing the doctrine which he was afterwards to teach us, namely, that in being invited to a feast, we should not seek to occupy the better places, but be satisfied with the lowest. Then the miracle of changing the water into wine, and the dignity of the Redeemer was revealed. 
the disciples believed anew, as the evangelist says, and their faith in him was confirmed. Not only they, but many of the others that were present, believed that he was the true Messiah, and they followed him to the city of Capernaum, whither the evangelist tells us he, with his mother and disciples, went from Cana. There, according to St. Matthew, he began to preach, declaring himself the teacher of men. What St. John says of his manifesting his glory by this sign or miracle does not contradict his having wrought miracles before, but supposes them to have been wrought in secret. Nor does he assert that his glory was not shown also in other miracles, but infers merely that Jesus did not wish to be known as their author, because the right time determined by divine wisdom had not come. It is certain that he performed many and admirable wonders in Egypt, such as the destruction of the temples and their idols. To all these miracles, Most Holy Mary responded with heroic acts of virtue, in praise and thanksgiving to the Most High, that his holy name was thus gloriously manifested. She was intent on encouraging the new believers, and in the service of her divine Son, fulfilling these duties with peerless wisdom and charity. With burning love, she cried to the Eternal Father, asking him to dispose the hearts and souls of men for the enlightening words of the Incarnate Word, and drive from them the darkness of their ignorance. Instruction given to me by the Queen, the Mistress of Heaven. My daughter, without any excuse, is the forgetfulness and negligence shown by each and every one of the children of the Church, in regard to the spread and manifestation of the glory of their God, by making known his holy name to all rational creatures. This negligence is much more blamable now, since the eternal word became man in my womb, taught the world and redeemed it for this very purpose. With this end in view, the Lord founded his church, enriched it with blessings and spiritual treasures, assigned to it ministers, and endowed it with temporal riches, all these gifts are intended not only to preserve the church in its present state, but to extend it and draw others to the regeneration of the Catholic faith. All should help to spread the fruits of the death of their Redeemer. Some can do it by prayer and urgent desires for the exaltation of his holy name, others by almsgiving, others by diligent preaching, others by fervent works of charity. But if this remissness is perhaps less culpable in the ignorant and the poor, who have none to exhort them. It is very reprehensible in the rich and the powerful, and especially in the ministers and prelates of the church, whose particular duty is the advancement of the church of God. Many of them, forgetting the terrible account which they will have to render, seek only their own vain honor instead of Christ. They waste the patrimony of the blood of the Redeemer in undertakings and aims not even fit to mention, and through their fault, allow innumerable souls to perish, who by proper exertions could have been gained for the Holy Church, or at least they lose the merit of such exertions, and deprive Christ of the glory of having such faithful ministers in his church. The same responsibility rests upon the princes and the powerful of the world, who receive from the hands of God honors, riches, and temporal blessings for advancing the glory of the deity and yet think less of this obligation than of any other. Do thou grieve for all these evils, and labor, as far as thy strength will allow, that the glory of the Most High be manifest, that he be known to all nations, and that from the very stones may be generated sons of Abraham. 
Matthew chapter 3 verse 9. Since all of this thou art capable, beseech him to send able workers and worthy ministers to his church in order to draw men to the sweet yoke of the gospel. For great and plentiful is the harvest, and few are the faithful laborers and zealous helpers for harvesting it. Let what I have told thee of my maternal and loving solicitude in gaining followers for my son and in preserving them in his doctrine and companionship be to thee a living example for thy own conduct. Never let the flame of this charity die out in thy breast. Let also my silence and modesty at the wedding feast be an inviolable rule for thee and thy religious in all exterior actions, in retirement, moderation, and discretion of words, especially in the presence of men. For these virtues are the courtly dress, with which the spouses of Christ must adorn themselves in order to find grace in his divine eyes. End of chapter 1